Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Hurt by the Female Pain Dogs, Season 3. It's been over a year since we launched our podcast, and we are so grateful to our listeners. We have surpassed over 4,000 downloads, and the podcast is listened to in over 30 countries. So thank you for keeping us going, and we are so excited to share even more information this season. And for those of you who follow us on social media, you may also know that both Dr. K and Dr. P passed their lifestyle medicine boards and are now officially triple board certified in anesthesiology, pain medicine, and lifestyle medicine. And as this podcast focuses on women's health and men's health, we are eager to bring more topics at the intersection of all of these areas of medicine for our listeners. And now, without further ado, we have an amazing episode to launch this season. On today's episode, I, Dr. P, will be interviewing Dr. K and a patient of hers, Paige Davis. Paige is an actress best known as the host of the TLC home improvement show, Trading Spaces. Paige presented to Dr. K's office last year, and thanks to Dr. K's help, was able to get her pain managed. Paige was inspired to create awareness for other women in similar situations who were unable or uncomfortable with speaking up about their own pain. And we are so thankful to women like Paige who advocate for women's health and pelvic pain conditions. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alobi Patel. We are the female pain dogs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Hello, Paige, and welcome to The Hurt by the Female Pain Docs. Thank you so much for joining us today. And more importantly, thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for volunteering to tell your story to create awareness for female pelvic pain conditions. It is such a personal and intimate journey for many, and we appreciate you for speaking up and empowering others to do the same, to advocate for their care and to get the appropriate treatment. So thank you for that. So Paige, um, tell us a bit more about uh, when you first noticed the pain and the pain condition and when you realized you needed to see somebody. Well, first, I have to thank the both of you for your your advocacy for women and pain and for doing this podcast and for being on a mission yourselves. I'm very grateful to have met Mira in person and to have her be my doctor. I think looking back, it always hurt. You know, I became sexually active in terms of intercourse when I was 17. And it always hurt. But I thought, oh, well, they say it hurts the first time. Or I always made excuses for myself. And I just thought it was because I was inexperienced or I hadn't found the right person. But it was never right. And it was never okay. And as I went through years, like, you know, being, being pretty promiscuous in college and, you know, going through all that, you know, trying to make it work, make somebody love me doing all the things you think you're supposed, not supposed to do, but I thought I needed to do. Um, it just never really went away. And then as I got a little bit older, 
and started hearing from my friends that their experience was not the same, it started occurring to me that there might be a problem. And I went to doctors all over the country because by that time I had, you know, started traveling in my career as a dancer. I had begun touring with the national touring company of Broadway's Beauty and the Beast. So I was literally all over the country and, and I saw doctors everywhere. One of the first doctors I saw was in Chicago and I was told that it was oxalates in my diet. And I was told to wear white cotton underwear and cut out all oxalates, which was basically my entire diet, you know, berries, tomatoes, um, leafy greens. Like, you know, I was, I remember trying to be vegan back then. And I thought, well, you've just named my entire diet. So then I thought, oh, this is all my fault. You know, I've been doing this to myself. Then somewhere along the line, oh, I went to see that doctor because I'd seen in a magazine, this little tiny, like, I couldn't even call it an eighth of a page. It was like, what's a 16th of a page little article about vulvodynia. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's me. That's me. That's me. And it had mentioned this doctor in Chicago. And we just happened to be going there for our next city. And I thought it was fate, but he wasn't really helpful in the end. And then it was just a series of going to different people and asking my gynecologist, like saying, every time I went to my annual appointment, you know, it hurts, it hurts. It always hurts. And being told that there's nothing wrong with my skin, you know, there's nothing, there's no irritants. I took every, you know, blood test, every STD test, every thing under the sun. And I was always told that there was nothing that could be found that was wrong. I mean, there was just decades of that really, you know, just seeing different doctors. And then I remember my gynecologist here in New York saying something to me about pelvic PT. And I didn't understand what she meant. And I, I probably went another four or five years before I said, wait a minute, what did you say again? And where should I go? And who should I see? And she'd mentioned a pel- some pelvic pain specialist rehab place. And they couldn't take me. They didn't have availability. And they recommended I go to another doctor who was a psychiatrist. And she was the one who first recommended to me that I change. She was the first person to recommend I change my diet again. She was the first doctor again, after decades, to recommend changing my diet. And she said, it sounds like there's a lot of inflammation. Have you considered trying an anti-inflammatory type diet or regimen? So she had me cut out gluten and dairy and sugar and alcohol. And it did help. It really did help a lot. And what I noticed is that it really helped my digestion. Troubles that I'd had, I don't, I mean, I don't remember a time in my whole life where I didn't have issues with major constipation. It was just my norm. I didn't think of it as constipation. I would go to the bathroom, like I'd go poop like once a week if I was lucky. I considered that like a good week if I actually went. And so I became more committed to that dietary uh, approach because it worked in other areas as well. And then eventually I was recommended to another pelvic specialist, Dr. Bonder, and she was great. 
And then I eventually got recommended to Dr. Kirpakar, and she's been great. But the pelvic, when I finally started learning about the pelvic floor is when a lot of things came into focus for me because when I initially went to my first pelvic PT appointment, I was answering all these questions about going to the bathroom. And I was like, what does this have to do with the stinging and burning on the skin of my vagina? And I couldn't understand. And I started connecting the dots of the pelvic floor muscles being what was causing a majority of my really intense issues. And I said to, in my first PT appointment, I said, you know, I, I still don't understand though. I don't understand how musculature issues are causing stinging and burning. If I told you it felt like a bruise or I told you it felt like a stone or I told you it felt, it felt tight or felt like a sore muscle, I would understand. I'm still having trouble translating how my pain is processed in the feeling of like a sunburn or like a thousand paper cuts. And she said, no one entirely understands it. All I can tell you is we have overwhelming anecdotal evidence to tell us it's true. And when she said that, when she said overwhelming evidence, it suddenly hit me that I wasn't alone. It's like that. I mean, I knew I couldn't be the only one, but it hit me that there were like thousands and thousands and thousands of women who are experiencing this. And that's when I, in the back of my mind, the seed was planted. I've got to start talking about this because if people would just talk about it, I might've had help a long, long, long time ago. And I wouldn't have gone through over three decades of pain. So that's how I got to this place now talking to you. (laughs) And thank you for sharing that. And what a long journey it's been. And it's unfortunate, but I think so many women have had the same course where they kind of are either told it's normal or they're ashamed to talk about it because, you know, they feel that they might be disappointing to their partners or that someone won't listen to them or validate their feelings. So I think It's unfortunate, but a lot of women do face this sort of long course of ignoring the pain and, you know, not addressing it at all. So it's really good. I'm happy even 30 years later that you were able to find the support that you, um, that you needed. And I hope that this can encourage more women and especially at a younger age to seek the help and get that early intervention. And you mentioned a few sort of points that I wanted to talk about, but, um, So you mentioned constipation and constipation is a big part of pelvic pain. And as you mentioned, the pelvic floor is, it's just such a big part of of women's sort of pelvic pain conditions because um, the muscles and nerves, everything is so interconnected, right? And it's again, very unfortunate that women don't get educated about the pelvic floor, right? Considering that it literally supports our organs and we have you know, the uterus and, you know, the bowels, everything over there. And we don't get as much attention in terms of pelvic floor physical therapy, which is one of the first sort of interventions we usually recommend for pelvic pain. And it took you many years, unfortunately, to find somebody who even told you to go to pelvic floor therapy. So I think, again, this has to do with how there needs to be more awareness about pelvic floor muscles, pelvic floor conditions. Did you feel that when you were going to these different physicians. Did you feel heard? Few doctors, I really literally felt just brushed off. Other doctors, 
I felt like they were listening. They just felt up against a wall. They felt unable to offer anything. You know, if, if somebody does all the tests, I mean, they don't know what to say. Like I've tested you for everything under the sun. You don't have any of it. I don't know where to go from here. Like, I think they just felt stuck. And that was very frustrating. You know, it's interesting because we say a lot of times that women are, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, pushed aside and and told, like, especially with conditions like this, you know, just have a glass of wine and relax. And there's something really interesting about that because it's rude and horrible and it leaves you crying on the sidewalk after your appointment, except that there's also some truth to it. Like it's the relaxing that you need to do. You can train your pelvic muscles to relax and that's what pelvic PT can help you do. And so it's a little bit of a catch 22 because on one hand being told that just makes you tense up even more. And it's so counterproductive to what needs to happen, but it also is the exact thing that needs to happen. It's just, I think it's how it's presented and how it's described to a patient. You know, it can't be, it's, it's not so simple. It's, it's simple, but it's not easy. I think it goes back to patient education as well as physician education, which we'll touch upon as well. I mean, pelvic pain conditions in general, not many physicians treat pelvic pain, even within the gynecology community, urology, pain physicians. So physician education, yes, in terms of finding the right physician who can specialize in it, but also patient education, right? So to to be taught about the pelvic floor, to understand how it works, what can make it worse, what can make it better. Um, not many people have that sort of opportunity or they don't even know that they need to have that opportunity to learn, to be able to, to get the right care for it. So, you know, again, why we need to empower patients um, to kind of take it into their own hands and to be able to have the appropriate care. And you mentioned that you had all of the tests done. So name it, I guess I was tested for it. I certainly went in for, you know, my pap smears. I certainly went in for my examinations. Uh, you know, I went through the period of time where, you know, steroid creams and, you know, oh, we'll just strengthen the tissue and, um, or like estrogen creams and things like that. And it was never seeming to help. Um, it just made sex awkward and weird and it just made things worse. Now, you know, I tried numbing creams and all that did was numb everything in the worst possible way and didn't take away pain. So, you know, I, I tried all of those things, but to no avail. Did you feel comfortable at any point talking to your partner about, about this pain? Did you have any, I never really gave him the chance um, that we are talking about a lot more honestly now. And he always knew I was in pain. I, I, I recently did a People Magazine article about all this, and they presented it as though for 26 years, Patrick had no idea. <laughs> that, that is not true. Um, Patrick knew that I had pain. He was very well aware of it. And he knew that I was on this journey to try to figure it out and everything. But I tended to downplay it. Um, no, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. Or it doesn't hurt as bad today because I was always afraid I would lose him. You know, that's not his fault. He would, you know, trust me in the moment. And I guess, you know, sexual faces can look, you know, pain and pleasure can look very similar in intimate moments. So I think he just decided to assume that I was in pleasure, even though I was in massive pain. I mean, the poor man, I feel so bad, you know, for him to find out now just how bad it was. Like, 
that's really hard for him to understand. It's hard for him to face that lack of trust, you know, from me. And it's hard for him to know that like, so all these years I've been hurting you so much more than you said. And just imagine hearing that from your partner. I mean, it's just, my heart just breaks for him almost more than for me. God bless him really for standing by me now. I feel really, really lucky. It's very, you're very fortunate to have such a supportive partner. Do you have any words of advice to, I mean, people come from every imaginable background, emotional home life insecurities. Like, you know, this is the same for men and women, of course. And sure. It's all well and good to say, just live in your truth every moment of every day. But when things are at risk, that can be really, really scary. But I mean, I would definitely say to, you know, someone in their twenties, don't, don't, if you are in pain, don't ignore it. Don't avoid it. Keep advocating for yourself. Don't stop until you find a doctor who can help. Um, I've said in a number of direct messages on my social media, since kind of all this came out, you know, you're looking specifically for a pelvic pain specialist, you know, and your gynecologist might know one, but it's not necessarily your gynecologist who you need to keep going to see. This is what you need to research and look for and, and try different ones. Don't give up just because some doctor says, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. Like you have to believe if you're in that much pain, there's a reason it's not just in your head. I never want to deny the emotional component that comes with it and is attached to it. And the, the control issues that I have in life are mirrored in my pelvis. So don't stop until you find an answer. It might be psychology. It might be medication. It might be an ablation to the pudendal nerve down there. It might, it could be anything and everything. It could be one of it and all of it, but don't stop until the pain is gone because that's pain is a signal. Absolutely. And you touched upon something so important that I want to point out to our listeners. So especially for pelvic pain, because there are so many like systems, organ systems essentially involved, right? So you have the bladder, which is part of the urological system. You have the intestines, which is part of the GI system. You have the uterus, which is part of you know the reproductive system, but in terms of gynecology background. So, so many different specialties can be involved in the treatment of pelvic pain, including pain management, which we kind of special, and rehab doctors, Dr. Bondra, I know her as well. She's a rehab doctor. So we kind of specialize in muscles, nerves, and bones is what I like to say. And we know what nerves are essentially causing the pain, but so many physicians might have insight into what is causing the pain. And for someone to go to one physician who may not know the whole picture, um, kind of deters them, right? Because they're like, oh, maybe it is me. Maybe it is in my head because you just went to a gynecologist, but you may have needed, you know, a GI doctor to also kind of look at the GI symptoms or a urologist, excuse me. So it deters a lot of patients from seeking the next doctor. So what you said was so important to our listeners to know that just keep going, find the right doctor. And and that kind of brings me to Dr. K, who's been patiently waiting. <laughs> How did you find Dr. K? And I'm so happy that you did because, you know, powerful forces unite in terms of this women's health uh, initiative. I, I but tell her. us how you found her. And then um, Dr. G had done some nerve ablations for me for my back. And I've seen Dr. G for a, a number of years now. And I just really, really trust him. And I'd found out that, you know, a possible ablation to the pudendal nerve could be something that might really help me. And so I wrote him like, 
it's still a needle. Like, can you just, can you do a different nerve? And he said, I, I can do that. I do know how to do that, but I rarely do that. And there's another doctor in my practice who does it like all day. And this is what she does. And you like, you should go to her. And so that's how I got to Dr. Kirpikar. That's amazing. I'm very happy that you did. So Mira, Dr. K, Kirpikar, uh, tell us about when patients present to you and, you know, we both see a lot of these patients, but you know, when, when these patients present to you, how do you evaluate them and how tell our listeners the process in terms of um, the evaluation, the other sort of imaging and diagnostic methods um, before you kind of get to the ablation? Before I kind of talk about the specifics as far as diagnosing, you know, I want to touch on what Paige was saying earlier in terms of you know, just kind of living with this pain for a really long time and not really telling your partner about it and just kind of just sort of dealing with it. And I think that's just something that women do. And this is not, this is not just necessarily, you know, a patient coming in because majority of the time patients that are coming in that are women have been in pain for many years, have been in pain for like 20 years. You don't necessarily see that so much with men. Like you just don't really see that length of time in terms of dealing with a problem like that with the no answers and just kind of uh, learning to sort of live with it. You don't see that as much the other way. And I, and I feel like that goes back to women are just sort of educated on thinking that pain is normal in a lot of ways. Like we have our, we have our periods and you're expected to just deal with your period and periods are painful. And so you just kind of learn to think that it's normal to be in pain and you don't really have a reference to what is quote unquote normal amount of pain and what is not. And so until you have those conversations with other people and you start to realize other people's experiences, because no one, you know, talk about the pelvis as much. And so women don't talk about it to each other as much either. And so until you actually start to have conversations with other women and they're like, that's not what it feels like for me. That's when you start to even realize that, oh, maybe you are feeling a quote abnormal amount of pain. So by the time women come to see me, they've often been in this pain for a very long time and they've only started looking into possible diagnosis to figure out what was wrong probably like 15 years later. <laughs> like they've been living with it for like 15 years and then like five years in, they're like, okay, maybe I should get some answers because apparently it's not normal. You don't have that same experience, I think, with men because there's nothing like that equivalent for men where there's just some <laughs> normal amount of pain that they have every month and they just deal with it. There's, that's not, there's not that equivalent. For men, if they have pain, so they look into it right away because it's automatically not normal. And so the longer that people are in pain, in this case, usually it's women, the, the harder it is to treat because there's so many changes that can happen along the way, both in terms of the pelvis and in terms of the brain and spinal cord. So that makes it that much harder to treat overall and also even just to get a diagnosis in the first place. And obviously, there are a lot of different pelvic pain-related diagnoses, um, specifically for pages. So in terms of pudendal neuralgia, like that's what I treat and actually alopecia too, like both of us, I think, treat most often as far as pelvic pain goes, um, there really is not actually any testing that specifically in terms of imaging, like x-rays, MRIs, things like that, blood tests. There's nothing like that for it. And by the time women get to us, we've usually had a whole battery of tests. 
and that have all been normal. And so they've been brushed off as, well, I don't, there's nothing wrong. Everything looks normal. So you're fine. And the thing is that for pedental neuralgia, there's no test like that for it. The way that you diagnose it is really the symptoms that the patient is experiencing, whether those fall into certain categories, and then doing a nerve block. And if the nerve block helps, even if it helps for a couple of hours, literally two, if it helps for even two hours, where it's like felt great for those two hours, that's a positive diagnosis. And that's the problem. That's usually not how they come in. They come in having had like a battery of tests, surgeries, uh, sometimes like having seen physicians in every different field um, without ever having just had these criteria looked at. And it's so underdiagnosed. So for me, I really just start with symptoms. Like that's the number one question is like, what does it feel like to you? And that's what I base my treatment on also is like, what does it feel like to you? Because tests can be negative and that can mean absolutely nothing. Um, really I'm trying to treat what the patient's symptoms are. And so that's why even when I'm at page, it's like, we talked about the symptoms and we went straight to a block. It's pretty funny. And then the block is ultimately the way to positively diagnose it. Quick have sex. (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, honey, honey, we have an assignment. It's not my fault. It's homework. We have to do it. (laughs) I tell my patients, I'm like, I'm probably one of the only doctors that's going to tell you to go home and have sex. Because that's the best way to know if it's working. And, you know, that's exactly that's exactly what we tell a lot of our patients. But, um, you know, I think Mira also mentioned something really important, which we've spoken about on previous episodes as well, but the concept of central sensitization. So basically, Paige, and for our listeners, what that is, is basically, let's say you, you banged your, your knee against the wall. The first time you're like, oh, that hurts, but you're fine. Let's say you do it again and again, it hurts. But if you do it repeatedly over and over for 10, 15, 30 minutes, even touching the knee is going to hurt. And it's a concept of the brain kind of amplifying those pain signals over time. And that's why, again, it's so important to have help, to seek help earlier. And that's why it's, again, I wanted to really highlight page you and what you would tell yourself 20 years, 25 years ago. And I want to highlight that to the other younger women out there that seek help early because the sooner you can yes. seek help, the less Although, worse you'll get. Although I do get. think I would not want any woman near my age or older than me to not still try. You know, there it's, it's never too late. And you, you're not just, you don't have to resign mm-hmm. yourself Absolutely. to come this far. And this diagnosis has really only been around since 1988, which is crazy because it affects like 1% of the population. It's, I'm sure it's been around for thousands of years, but it was only first really seen or first really documented since 1988. So, you know, it hasn't been around, or at least in terms of a name for it and any kind of uh, treatment plan or anything for it since 1988. So it hasn't been that long. I want to they give a shout out to your episode would have no idea. where you specifically break down like the umbrella of all of these things, vulvodynia, prudental neuralgia, like where uh, all its different subsets, because mm-hmm. I thought that that podcast explained it like so succinctly. So if anyone's feeling a little lost listening to this podcast and wondering like, is this me? Listen to that. What, what episode is it? Do you guys know offhand? 
there was two. Pudendal neuralgia was episode two of season one, and then um, painful sex yeah. or some sort of yeah. episode like that. I think go like back season, and listen. Season one, episode five, something. Like I, I thought that was one of the most just eye-opening and succinct, articulate, clear ways I've ever heard any of it described and or explained. I also want to kind of tie in how how your interactions with Mira were. So Dr. K, essentially, how did you feel about having... Oh, it was wonderful. You know, she really knew what I was talking about. She really understood. She was able to mirror it back to me exactly what I was saying. She was asking questions that I'm not even sure I can remember, to be completely honest, but she was asking questions I don't recall being asked before. And she was offering up real things I could try that weren't just... Again, you have you do still have to do the emotional and psychological work that comes with it, especially if you have been suffering for decades, because you know, I I know that I'm shut off before it even starts, right? Even before any kind of physical intimacy starts with my husband, my mind is going, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. And so of course my body is closing down, my pelvis is shutting down, everything is tightening up. And I can deep breathe all I want. That is decades of pain that is just, you know, convincing me that this is going to be terrible. So you ha- you do have to do that work too. But she was offering real things to try that weren't just topical and they weren't just go home and have a glass of wine. You know, there were so many times I left doctor's offices. I remember one time I got you know, down to the sidewalk of 57th street. I just called Patrick just crying. It's all my fault. It's all my fault. It's all in my head. I'm doing this to myself. I'm doing this to us. You know, you should leave me. I'm broken. You know, the whole, all the whole thing. I mean, it was so dramatic. I'm almost embarrassed to admit it, but just sobbing, just sobbing on the sidewalk. Cause I felt there's no answer. There's no hope. And she offered real hope. Dr. Kerper offered real things we could try. And she even said, even then, she said, and if that doesn't work, we could try this. And if that doesn't work, we could try this. Like she had already let me know, don't worry. I have many things up my sleeve. Sometimes it doesn't take the first time. Maybe it's just about trying it again. We can come up from a different angle. We can do this. We can do that. We can try a different nerve. We can. So I left her office thinking, oh, I have a partner in this. And to not give up hope too soon. You know, people go through this with antidepressants a lot. When you suffer from clinical depression and you really need to be on an antidepressant, taking that first pill is not the end all be all, right? You've got to find the right kind of medication for you. Then you have to find the right dosage for you. And that can take weeks, sometimes months or longer to really figure out before you can regulate your system properly. And I I just really appreciated that she let me know I'm in this for the long haul. I don't want it to be, I want it to be as short as possible, but I'm in it as we try each thing. Don't give up. There's, I have many options for you as opposed to, well, I tested you. There's nothing wrong. Bye. I think hope is such a big part of it because especially for people who've had long journeys in terms of finding that provider, they'll really give them that chance. Like hope is a big part of it because there are, it's never the end. There's always something that we can try. And I'm glad that she was able to offer that to you. I think a statement like, oh, just have a glass of wine and relax. I feel like to a person saying that it feels very just blase, like, oh, you know, it's fine. You're fine. But really, I feel like what I'm saying to the patient or whoever's hearing it is that 
it's me. I'm, it's my problem. Like I'm the one who's wrong here. I'm not relaxing apparently. And so I need to have some wine and then relax. And it's all on me. Like I'm, I'm creating this myself and it doesn't even work. Uh, <laughs> one, have a glass of wine and relax doesn't even work because in terms of like an anti-inflammatory diet, wine is not so great with that anyway. And then the other thing that women are often told is to just do some Kegels and it'll be fine. And especially in something like pudendal neuralgia, that's usually the exact wrong type of exercise you should be doing because that's ultimately strengthening and making it tighter what's already really tight and what needs to actually be, quote unquote, relaxed more. And so those are like the most common phrases that women have come to me saying that they were told to just like, like have a drink, relax, or told to just do some heat exercise and exacerbate. And neither, neither one of those things <laughs> actually helps. And we know that to be true. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, Mira, kind of going back to you, but we've both been doing this for a few years now. What would you say is the most rewarding aspect in a way of also seeing these patients? Because we're women too, and we've also had our fair share of sort of hurdles as well. But like what would you say is the most rewarding aspect of seeing women's health patients and pelvic pain patients and then seeing a change in their lives as well? For both of us, you know, I feel like we started doing this um, because just frustrated and angry with how women were not able to get the help that they need and they're so often dismissed. So the first thing for me is just to be able to validate someone's pain and to be able to express that I believe them and that it, it doesn't matter if everything that you had, every test you've had done so far is normal, quote normal, that doesn't mean anything. So just to be able to like give that validation and then to be able to actually try, it's very rewarding to actually try procedures, any kind of therapy, procedures, medications, physical therapy, behavioral therapy, just, just kind of plugging the patient into all these different avenues and then actually seeing a change, like actually seeing them get better. But honestly, I feel like the first thing that patients are so appreciative of and give you that sense, that the feeling of like, you helped in some way is really just that validation. It's just that like validation of like, I don't think you're crazy. Like, I don't think you're making this up. Um, I believe you. And I know that you haven't received an answer so far. And sometimes patients just want a diagnosis. They just want to know that like, there is a name for what they're experiencing and they haven't had any kind of name for it so far. So it's really just that first, even that first interaction of giving some reassurance and some, we have a plan going forward that in itself is really satisfying. And then of course, you know, when you actually see it help, like actually see your plan go forth and actually help them, that's really rewarding. Plus, also. plus I'm very entertaining. <laughs> she is. <laughs> she entertained my residents and fellows too. <laughs> Paige, you've been so brave and, you know, you, you shared your story in such a public forum with People Magazine, which I'm sure required a lot of guts and, you know, to, to go forward with that because not many people have. And, you know, the more women speak that speak up about this and the more we amplify each other's messages, like, Hey, this is not supposed to be normal, but if you have it, it is okay. And you're not broken and you can find help. So tell us about the aftermath. I I did get, you know, a few hundred messages just thanking me. And I got, I mean, I got a couple of messages, like literally two, a couple of messages from people who were like, 
you know, this is a first world problem. You're so spoiled to have to worry about this. And I'm like, really read the room. But I was flat. I was very, uh, relieved that it was met with so much encouragement and support. And I felt very strongly that my words were like water in a desert, you know, that the kind of messages I were, was getting was this like, Oh my gosh, me too. You know, like, not like me too, like hashtag me too, the movement, but you know, I've had this and I've never known what it was. And, you know, I'm so grateful that you're speaking about it. I've had people write me to say that they've reached out, like say to a sister or a wife or a friend to say, Hey, you know, you mentioned this kind of casually at some point, like you should read this article that, you know, Paige was interviewed. You can, you know, is this what you have? Do you think? And it really has started a domino effect, which is exactly what I wanted. It's the only thing I wanted. And I was terrified of the backlash, but thrilled that I really didn't have any backlash at all. And it, you know, it turned out I didn't have to be as quote unquote brave as I thought, you know, I I really thought that like my entire male fan base would just disappear. You know, the fans who are like, you know, you're my pass, right? You're my celebrity pass or whatever. I just thought all of those people would just be like, oh God, I didn't know she had a broken vagina. I don't like her anymore, you know, whatever. And I've found just the opposite. Men have been so supportive and curious. And I I did a radio interview with like a disc jockey who's like kind of known for being very, you know, inflammatory. And he, you know, he does the early morning alt rock station. And so, you know, they're like goofballs. They're like jackasses on purpose. But he handled the subject with such honesty. And he was desperate to ask his wife, like, are you hurting and you haven't told me? He, his whole heart just sank that there was this chance that his he'd been hurting his wife and he didn't know. And I've really found that response to just be so heartwarming and encouraging and think people need to talk about it more so that it's destigmatized. Yeah. I mean, women's health lies in both our hands and our partners to, to help support and amplify our message. What, what do you think we could do? And I mean, we as like a big picture, like we as women, but also we as physicians and fellow supporters, what can we do to help? Communication and conversation is everything. It's everything within friendships. It's everything within work relationships. It's everything with intimate partner relationships and spouses. It's, it's communication is, you know, what you go to a couple's therapist and what do they tell you? Communication is the answer. Like, how do you communicate? When do you communicate? I talk about it now all the time. If, if somebody, you know, if somebody asks me what's going on in my life, I'm like, well, I've been doing interviews about my vagina. <laughs> it's just because you have to like, in a way you almost have to treat it with a little bit of humor so that it <laughs> breaks the tension in the room. Like it shouldn't be this shameful thing. You know, women feel like that they have to be sexy, but don't you dare say you actually have sex and want to enjoy it. And I think, you know, breaking that it's, it's all about the communication and destigmatizing it. It's just about talking, not being afraid to tell your sister or tell your mother or tell your best friend who's at work and let them tell their sister and their mother and their best friend and, you know, and so on and so on and so on. So that that domino effect happens. I can try to use my platform as much as I can. You know, I have a voice, I have a following and people do trust me, I believe, which is great. But you know, I don't have, 
I can't reach millions of women that I want to reach so badly. But I do think it's about just not ever being shy about talking about it. And regardless of how many people we think we can reach, I think each one person who can spread the message to another person, another person is amplifying that message. And what you're doing is so powerful for that reason to have the platform. And that's what we're trying to do too, in terms of reaching as many women as possible and men to help support their partners. So I think, yeah, even having conversations with a few people from this whole, you know, outpouring and there's been like massive change in their lives already. Like husbands addressing their wives differently, wives going to seek help when they hadn't for years. I mean, if it helped literally one person, it was all worth it. And I really feel that. That conversation really needs to change in that there's a study that looked at, you know, that kind of compared responses in terms of men and women with with sex in terms of what do you consider to be good sexual intercourse. And for for men, it was achieving orgasm. That was considered good sex. And for women, mm-hmm. it was overwhelmingly, I didn't have pain, was considered good sex. Like, so you, even just the, the baseline of what's considered good sex is so different. Um, and, and the fact that for women, it's just, I didn't have pain. Like I, not that I achieve orgasm, I just didn't have pain during sex. Being the majority response, is to very telling of the fact of how many women suffer from painful sex and how many women suffer from pelvic pain conditions, yet don't talk about it. That, that's like the biggest, I think all of us, the biggest thing to come out of this is to have more women speak up about it, seek help early, but really just more women to speak up about it and make it normal to talk about that something was painful um, or something was not pleasurable in some way, or they had some kind of symptom that they're experiencing, whatever the, whatever the issue may be, but just to have, be able to bring it up and not have it be stigmatized. Even now when I have patients in the office, sometimes I'll see a patient listed more often than I'd like, where I'll see a patient listed and the chief complaint kind of listed underneath them, which is what they've told the, the office when scheduling the inter- scheduling the um, appointment has been abdominal pain. And then I see the patient pelvic pain, but they don't want to say that because they feel ashamed to say that to, eat to their doctor. Like they feel ashamed to even just mention that to their doctor. And that's, I mean, to me, I was like, that's, you know, that really like desperate where, where it needs really to change. Hurts. If you can't even talk to your yeah. physician about a condition that you're having, who else are you going to talk to? Yeah. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Paige. Thank you, Mira, for joining us today. And we had such a lovely conversation and we're just so grateful, Paige, for everything that you're doing. So thank you. And just, any, thank any you questions? Both. Thank you for inviting Before me to go. talk. And for anybody who's listening, go back and listen to those earlier podcasts because they're extremely informative and they'll help you if you have it and they'll help you if you know anyone who has it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at the female pain docs at Gmail. If you have any topics in particular, you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.